Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us this morning to open up your Holy Scriptures. I pray that you would guide and direct us by them to convict and to change our hearts, to draw us unto you. Lord, I pray that your word would work its mighty work inside of us so that we might be changed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that communion this morning would represent to us, reminding our hearts and proclaiming through us to others the power of Christ's blood unto salvation. Guide us now as we open up this great book of Hebrews again, so that we might rightly understand it according to its intent, according to your purpose, your spirit-directed, inspired purpose for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What a privilege to open up the Holy Scriptures again this morning. I would encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 20 this morning will be our primary text. As you're turning there, in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. The title of this morning's message is Property of Salvation. This title comes from verse 9 based on a phrase, Things that belong to salvation. So what is the things, what are the things that belong to salvation? What is the property or what is properly associated with salvation according to the author of Hebrews? That will be the theme of our text in this message this morning. So stand with me if you would with your Bible open and let us read together these verses, Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. The Word of God says to us today, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the infallible Word of God. You may be seated. In our series in Hebrews, you may remember several weeks ago, we had a message entitled, The Danger of Dullness. Stiff warnings come to the church in the book of Hebrews because there is evidence that they have been lax, lackadaisical, dull, blind, or becoming lazy, listless, as the word uh, reminds us, this word nothros in the Greek, slack, lazy, listless, inert, lackadaisical. This word appears twice in the verses, once in verses prior to our text this morning, and the second time is in the context of our main passage today. If we rewind a bit to Hebrews 5, verse 11, this Greek word nothros appears in verse 11, or Hebrews 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become nothros, dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Later, as he continues in this section to warn the church about the effects of this kind of dullness, uh, this nothros, he uses the word again translated as sluggish in Hebrews 6, verse 12. He says, uh, backing up to 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, nothros, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit 
the promises. Very stiff warning language is used in the passage that was the main passage for the danger of dullness, the title of our message several weeks ago. But on the heels of this stiff warning, we have this uh, commendation and and encouragement in verse 9 of chapter 6. Our author says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author has already stated the things that belong to Nothros. He has said so in verse 5 of chapter 6. And those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Uh, And then verse 6, if they then fall away since they are then crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. He has said prior to this that in verse 4, under these circumstances, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and so on. So to summarize then, those who fall victim of this sluggishness, the danger of dullness, do not repent, but continue on the trajectory of hardness of heart that this kind of frame of mind related to the means of grace induces in the soul is that they would be in danger of falling away to such a degree that they are crucifying again the Son of God, holding Him to open harm, to their, uh, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And this could be so bad that it would be impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is a stiff rebuke. However, there is this assurance in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Irrevocable apostasy belongs to the final effect of nothros or sluggishness. However, this morning, let us consider what belongs to salvation. Commendation and assurance that appear to us in our text today never taste so sweet as when they follow the stern rebuke of exhortational correction. When we are jolted awake to the precarious nature of our laziness, when we are brought in in our attention through the preaching and the means of God's Word and the corrective uh, instruction of the Holy Spirit to the danger of our situation, when commendation and assurance and encouragement follow that warning, it tastes sweet and it ought to fall as reassuring music on our ears. The author of Hebrews shifts the attention of his readers in these verses, Hebrews 6, 9 through 20, from the horrific consequences of apostasy to the glories of salvation and its properties in the latter half of this chapter 6. Taken as intended then, this entire passage serves as reassuring smelling salts for the prone to sluggishness believer. We begin to see the integrated relationship in this text of Christian virtues, instead of sluggishness, that is to say, what belongs to salvation? What ought we see in our heart, in our disposition, in our attitude, in our life, in our approach to the Christian calling? There are four properties of salvation or four Christian virtues along these lines that we see in these verses. Reading again in verse 11, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. There's one of these virtues. Full assurance of hope, that's the second one, until the end. Verse 12 then, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through two things, faith and patience, inherit the promises. Four Christian virtues, earnestness, hope, faith, and patience. Let's touch on these briefly by way of introduction to give us an idea of what is involved, the definition associated with these Greek words in the original tongue. First, earnestness in the Greek, spude. This word appears often in some of Paul's letters, you'll recall it in 2 Corinthians, where he would commend himself or other servants of God on the basis of their earnestness, like Timothy, like Titus, like the kind of tenacity and zeal that Paul showed in his ministry endeavors, and his mission work, the kind of earnestness, the kind of spude that would move someone to bear up under shipwreck, famine, burden of, of great physical pain, hardship, economic uh, problems, and uh, being uh, opposed on almost every stage of his missionary journey. 
required a certain earnestness for Paul to overcome this. Thus, in the Greek, the idea is a swiftness to show zealous diligence. Though there is a trial in view, there is a tenacity to overcome it within the heart of a Christian who heeds the word of God, overcomes sluggishness, and begins to show the properties of salvation. Secondly, let's consider hope, el pace, or el peace. It's an expectation of what is sure. An expectation of what is sure. Thirdly, faith, pistis in the Greek, God's warranty that guarantees the fulfillment of the revelation He births within the receptive believer. What is faith? We'll touch on this at a little greater depth as we move through this message this morning. But in short, these are definitions, by the way, that I gathered from uh, helps word studies. God's warranty, faith is God's warranty that guarantees the fulfillment of the revelation He births within the receptive believer. It is the work of God that connects the believer's confidence to what He has revealed as true. It is revealed by Him unto us by a power, uh, by His power at work within the believer. And then uh, fourthly this morning, we've covered earnestness, hope, faith. Let's consider briefly patience. Makrothomiha. Uh, Makrothomiha. And in the Greek, this term refers to the quality of being long-tempered or long-suffering, enduring under extended periods of hardship, adversity, or suffering. Hebrews reminds us in this section that every human action, every one of our decisions, our dispositions, our attitude, our approach, our worldview, is directly linked to a corresponding hope or faith. And this hope is an expectation of future events sovereign over present realities. So this is kind of the idea here. When the believer's mind when his expectations, when his perspective as to the future is oriented according to the truth of what God has declared, it is therefore or thereby an expectation of future events that reigns sovereign over his present realities and moves him to a disposition and to decision making, to an orientation, to an attitude and to a worldview that is akin to the things of salvation. Here's a heading for you for four, or three major points this morning. The heading is simply this, things that belong to salvation. Things that belong to salvation we will consider this morning in three categories. First of all, covenant believers. What are the things within and related to the covenant believer that belong to salvation? Secondly, let's consider covenant ratification. What are the things that belong to salvation? Well, in part, they have to do with covenant ratification, the terms or legal language of God's relationship with man. And thirdly, we'll consider things that belong to salvation as it relates to covenant headship. The reason you see the term covenant appearing three times in the heading or the main points of this message is because the language of Hebrews 6, 9 through 20 is framed with covenant in view. Covenant is relational language. It is a specific structure employed in the Scriptures to lay out for us the nature of the relationship between God and man. The term covenant simply means a binding relationship between two parties, promises made between two individuals or two parties in its simplest form. This framework for understanding is connected to terms and Concepts within the Bible, and it's a framework that is employed here in this text. And we'll see how the author draws on Old Covenant language to underscore and to proclaim New Covenant realities. Things that belong to salvation can be understood, first of all, in relationship to the covenant believer. We've talked about four virtues already. Let's dig a little deeper into Hebrews 6, 9 through 12 and see how these telling virtues and these soul-related characteristics um, imbue the believer and are associated with salvation. First of all, let's consider a conceptual concept, uh, context, the conceptual context in Hebrews 6, and we'll ponder three verses, four in fact, 9 through 12. Reading them again, our author says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As we look at the conceptual context we see some distinctions that are drawn in this passage. It's important to derive our definitions of these terms and these ideas from the context of the Bible itself. Let's consider it a little a more depth. For instance, the term hope or the terms hope and faith. In modern terms, uh, it may be tempting, in fact, to import uh, modern understandings and colloquial uh, common uh, understandings or definitions of hope and faith into the Scriptures. It's easy for us to import contemporary notions of these things into the text. It's important to see, though, from the inside out what the author means when he uses these terms, these Christian virtues, like hope and faith, like uh, pistis and elpis in the Greek. In modern terms, hope could be seen uh, in our day as nothing more than an empirically unwarranted certainty of irrational and superstitious causes. Uh, hope against hope, I, I wish uh, the following would happen. Or uh, faith, uh, similarly, could be described as that. In fact, uh, maybe that's a better way to describe faith in modern terms. What is faith? Well, the scientific community tells us that faith is nothing more than an empirically unwarranted certainty of irrational and superstitious causes. You see, we are told by the skeptics of our day and by the empiricists of our day. Empiricism is this idea that that which ultimately can be known, that which can be certainly established, <coughs> is limited to that which we can uh, ascertain and study in the laboratory, let's say, with our senses. The only things we can know for sure, according to modern man, is things that we can see, things that we can taste, touch, things that we can measure and quantify in the physical universe using our faculties, such as we have them in our human ability, like our sensory experience. And so, with this presupposition in view then, in modern terms, a faith is that which lies outside of what can be empirically established. So, someone might say, like a scientist, well, it's fine if you have faith, you know, as a believer, but just know that that is nothing based on any foundation. It's just something loosely bound out there. It's a sentimental or a, a, a superstitious a, attachment that we may have to an idea, but it's nothing we can know for sure. This is, in fact, exactly opposite of what the Bible declares faith to be. We will see the book of Hebrews expounding the term of faith, Faith, for instance, in Hebrews 11.1 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So yes, it is, lies outside of the senses, but listen to, the, uh, uh, listen to how the author founds or establishes, grounds the notion of faith. In verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He later says in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So faith, we see, according to the Scriptures, is God's guarantee that the fulfillment of the revelation He births within the receptive believer is something certain that he can bank his life on. Faith is not some loosely bound concept out there in the superstitious uh, ephemera of our, of our notions or mindset. Faith is something grounded and secure. Similarly, hope is not a tentative wish for eventualities that are unpredictably tied to the whim of unguided chance. You know, I certainly hope this happens or... I wish that this could be the case, is language that is common for us today. But the Scriptures, particularly Hebrews as we have it in our text today, refers to hope as an expectation of the future. It's a promise that is as certain as the one who has given us the, His word that it will come to pass. 
God is absolutely, certainly, and forever established in the reality of everything that we see around us. We cannot make sense of this world as we even see it empirically in nature itself if we do not understand that it has as its cause a personal, timeless, uncreated, self-existent, loving God who spoke it into being by the word of His power. And we have His revelation, not just in nature, but we have it specifically in His holy word. And on the basis of who He is, the certain, necessary, unfailing, and infallible ultimate power over this universe, as we have His Word in these scriptures, we know that our hope is based on His promises. Thus, that we, thus our hope is the promised future that we have uh, and, and we see by faith based on the certainty and the power of the one who promises it. We have grounded expectations for the as yet unexperienced. You might think, uh, what is a good example of the difference between modern notions of faith and hope and biblical notions of faith and hope? Well, let's say that you're traveling to a nation overseas that you've never visited before. It's a foreign language, and you'd like to see the sights when you go there. So you spend some money, you do some research, and you secure a tour guide. And you have faith in this tour guide based on their abilities. You know from your studies that this individual is a native of this, of this state, of, of this country. So therefore, he has personal experience with the various site, sites to see, landmarks, as well as the language and the culture of this foreign land. So you have, uh, based on your certainty of his knowledge, you enter into a contract or a covenant with him, and you give him a sum of money, and you say, take me to see the essential sites of this nation. And so he does. And as you go to different places, you see uh, landmarks. He takes you there safely on, on roads that he knows, he's very familiar with. He has directions, um, and he's memorized them, of course, and Uh, on these common paths traveled, and he knows the language. He can even help you communicate. And so you have faith in this individual. That's the basic idea of the difference between faith as the Scriptures have it and faith as the world sees it today. The world sees faith as uh, not a covenant relationship with one who has a perfect understanding of what you do not know, but instead a roll of the dice hoping that chance will uh, come up in your favor in the future, but having no assurance that it will. No, faith is not that at all. Faith is a relationship with someone who has certainty and who has a perfect understanding and knowledge of that which remains unexperienced and uncertain to you. So these are a few of the distinctions that we see of what belongs to salvation. Now, when we go back to our text with those uh, thoughts in mind, we see in verse 11, when the author says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now we see that the kind of mindset that we are to entertain as a believer is informed and energized, it is uh, infused by the biblical idea of what is hope, what is faith, what is patience, and how to combat sluggishness, laziness, an apathetic mindset. There is an earnestness, a confidence, a zeal, a tenacity, an expectation, and a faith, and a patience connected to the knowledge of who God is and what He has done for us. And as the author begins to expound the superior work of Christ, we see the foundation that ought to give us a tireless zeal to make known the Word of God. After all, He has already declared to us that the God who holds the future in His hands has redeemed us and has given us a call to shine for His glory is the one revealed in Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There's other powers that we can imagine, celestial and incredible like angels, but the author uses one of these great uh, ideas in the mind of man like angels and says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, verse 5, you are my son today, I have begotten you. To what angel, to what man, to what idea, to what philosophy has, uh, has ever been attributed the role of redeemer? To what angel has God ever said, you are my son, I have a specific purpose for you. You will be the incarnate Savior to rescue mankind from the miry clay of his sin. What angel, what being, what worldly power, what government, what authority, what empirical evidence that man would like to place his trust in has ever functioned in the order of Melchizedek of the high pri- as high priest for man to intercede on his behalf as both his sacrifice and his intercessor, his advocate before God to make the way straight into communion and holiness and relationship with the Almighty. There is none. So now we see that covenant believers are indeed zealous for good works, faithful and patient and enduring because of their relationship to what belongs to their salvation, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When the author says in this passage, now let's consider faith exemplified briefly. When the author says in 6.12, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, who does he have in mind? Who, that is to say, would the author have us imitate in our calling to have faith and patience? Well, as we look immediately, we see the example of Abraham. He says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, verse 14, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then 15, it says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promises. So faith, things that belong to salvation related to the disposition of the believer, is exemplified in the picture of Abraham. We see this right here in the text. But this is also a foreshadowing of the kind of faith that we see exemplified by numerous examples, again, in Hebrews 11. Uh, Skip forward with me for a moment, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. And here we see in what is often called the hall of faith uh, in the Scripture, many examples of those to imitate who through faith and patience obtain the promises. First of all, we have in verse 4, Abel says, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Again in verse 5, an example, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. We see Noah in verse 7, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark. For the saving of his household. Verse 8, Abraham appears again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. The list continues. We have Moses, who is prominently featured. We have others like Rahab, even surprising examples from the judges. We've heard of some of these in our Wednesday study when Stanley has revealed to us how Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, all featured in that book, also are featured in Hebrews 11, 32, 33, and following. We, we see how, through faith and patience, they obtained the promises of God. Thus, these are examples that we see that help us to understand things that belong to salvation. When we see the faith exemplified in Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, etc. Now when we go back to 6.12, when it encourages us to be imitators of those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises, we see how the author gives many examples of faith exemplified. There are definitive parameters and multiple examples in the book that explain what a covenant believer looks like, how his heart, how his mind, how his attitude is wired. Thirdly, under covenant believers, let's consider the term patience just briefly. What is patience in Scripture? Endurance 
It is endurance as a value and virtue necessarily present in the covenant believer. In context here, the author has used other terms to describe the kind of patience he's talking about. It's not a passive patience, but it's a patience akin to perseverance of the saints. Going back to Hebrews 4.12 for a moment, says, since then, as we have, uh, then, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's this idea of holding fast, a tenacity and an endurance, a patience that is... Uh, uh, absolutely firm and resolved to stand strong, even when it encounters trials, temptations, even in the face of its own weaknesses. This is the idea of patience as we see it in the text. Also, it's important to see these definitive parameters in contradistinction to negative example. That is to say, when the author uses the term patience, he means it in a way that is the opposite of those who lacked it. And he has an example, uh, impatience exemplified, if you will, appearing in the text in chapter 3. Chapter 3, 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. For forty years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These are the impatient ones that are cited from the Old Covenant. Uh, The examples of those, the rebels in the wilderness, that contrasting account those who opposed Moses, that fell away and were impatient. Thus, the things that belong to salvation are things that are associated with covenant believers who exemplify these Christian virtues of earnestness, hope, faith, and patience as we have it in the text. Secondly, what else belongs to salvation? Well, there's a covenant ratification, there's covenant ratification language. There is legal terms. There is assurance, or, or assurance presented to us in the covenant as it is presented in Scripture. Let us consider the contextual or the conceptual context of the legal structure of covenant briefly for a moment. Um, Let's uh, read, first of all, verses uh, 13 through 18 in Hebrews 6, and then I'll explain to you uh, several categories of covenant that will help us understand these words. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it by an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have, a strong, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In the Old Covenant especially, we see so many times the legal structure, particularly in books like Deuteronomy and the Torah. There is language, covenant, legal uh, uh, language and, and uh, parameters that are laid out to describe or to set the terms of relationship, particularly between God and and his people. Suzerain treaties were similar or were, would have been known culturally in that day. Uh, suzerain means a relationship of sovereign to underlings or a vassal state. Uh, it would be a relationship where a more powerful party would lay out the terms of, uh, of, of his favor and the requisite sanctions and terms um, that those the lesser party or lesser power needed to abide by in order to be in good standing with him. Uh, so when we see this legal structure in the scripture, often it would begin with a preamble, uh, a history or an announcement of who are the parties here and what do they propose to do. Secondly, there would be a historical prologue. That would be a brief historical summary, a history of the relationship between the parties. 
Thirdly, there'd be stipulations. These are things that you must do. These are the uh, terms and conditions of this arrangement. Fourthly, there'd be curses and blessings. These are the benefits. If you follow these instructions, follow these terms, and also curses if you break them. You remember in the books of the law, for instance, the two mountains, Gezerim and Ebal, and uh, in Deuteronomy 28, the curses and blessings are announced, they're proclaimed by large groups, crowds gathered on each mountain, respectively curses and blessings. That would be part of a covenant ratification ceremony where the sanctions are um, unfolded, proclaimed, and made public knowledge. And finally, succession terms or uh, provisions would be made in the covenant for its continuity. And this section would often include witnesses that are summoned and a public, public declaration. So within this uh, conceptual context of covenant ratification, we see that things that belong to salvation are ratified with ones like Abraham and those in Abraham's lineage by God Himself to His people. People swear, they make covenants, they ratify terms of relationship between themselves. They usually swear by uh, things higher than themselves. God has also sworn an oath, and it is final for confirmation. But when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, those in covenant relationship with Him, the unchangeable character of, of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. He swore by Himself, it goes on to say. So things that belong to salvation, the author is careful to show, or he uses contextually this kind of framework. This is not arbitrary. This is not shooting from the hip. This is planned and purposeful language. And in this way, God establishes His relationship with us and delivers it to us with terms that underscore its certainty, its provisions, its foundation, its power, and its binding nature. Secondly, under covenant ratification, with that in view, let us consider the nature and the surety then of God's promises. What will he accomplish? What are the blessings that are ratified in God's covenant? Well, in view and, an and by way of example, the author certainly has Genesis 15 in mind. Why? Because this is the passage that explains to us the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 15, God proclaims the following to Abraham in an amazing moment when he reveals himself tangibly in Abraham's experience, and we have the record in verses 1 through 7. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, God speaking. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. That is, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and give you to give you this land to possess. These are the promises that God made Abraham. A promise and assurance of what he would accomplish. God would satisfy what God would fulfill his prophecy to Abraham to give him many in his lineage. In the book of Hebrews it is explained to us that the seed of Abraham transcends his physical bloodline. That was prefiguring who would actually be the offspring of Abraham tied to God's purposes, His covenant with Him through Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 2, 16, For surely it is not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So this language of promises made to Abraham and then those who are associated with Abraham spiritually, his lineage, is the covenant groundwork. It's the context 
in which things that belong to salvation are delivered. So one of these unchangeable things by which we can be assured of the things that belong to salvation is God's promise, what He will accomplish. The second unchangeable thing is His oath. Uh, What does the author have in view when he uses this term oath? Let's turn back again to Genesis 15 to get the Old Covenant context. Verse 8, But he said, O Lord God, this is Abraham, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, female goat three years old. So uh, Abraham brings then to God this assortment of animals. Further instructions in verse 10. Cut them in half, and, uh, or Abraham cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Abraham guards these birds. Deep sleep falls upon him. Now something happens in the night, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now this is imagery where God uh, reveals himself to Abraham uh, symbolically. And God, God, uh, similar to a theophany, where God shows up in this representative form, like a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and passes through these split animals. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here we have the oath portion of the history of the covenant ratification ceremony with Abraham. And by this act of God passing through the split animals, he certified and assured the covenant with an oath, a self-maledictory oath. Self-maledictory means wishing a curse upon yourself should you be unfaithful to your promise. When God did this, he swore by himself since there was none higher, and he swore by a self-maledictory oath saying, if he would not satisfy if he would not be faithful to his promises that he himself would be accursed. This is incredible. Why did God do this? Well, I submit to you there is no reason if God had not made this oath to ever doubt what he had said. After all, every word of God is without fail and comes to pass. God is absolutely sovereign. However, God in his grace to us condescends to man. It is a grace to us to show us by His promise and by His oath that His promises to us are assured and secure. This is an ultimate picture of God's authority when He swears by Himself and a beautiful, gracious picture of His condescension, condescension stooping to us. Both of those things are in view. These are the things that belong to salvation. The fact that God has gone to such great lengths to communicate to us, fickle, frail, sinful, fallen creatures, the power of His promises and the assurance of salvation. He swore by Himself. He did it with an oath. He made a covenant ratification ceremony with Abraham. He recorded it it in Scripture for us to view. Thus, by these things we see that salvation is assured. It is a covenant. God has bound Himself to it. These are the things that belong to salvation. Covenant assured in God's own promises and oath unto Himself, as well as faith exemplified in the heart of a believer who understands these things, who feasts upon them, who meditates upon them, and through them uh, is, grows in his earnestness, faith, in his zeal, in his hope, in his patience, and thereby fights against sluggishness. Finally, this morning, there's a third category of things that belong to salvation, and this comes to us in the form of covenant headship as we read again verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In context here, we have a picture or an example of federalism or representation. In the Scriptures, 
the Locus Classicus, the uh, famous central text where this is most uh, clearly and readily explained, is in Romans chapter 5. In the scriptures, it is an axiom, it is a principle that one man is called often, like the high priest of old, to represent the whole. In Hebrews 6, the amazing truth is that Jesus Christ is representing those who are in Him. This concept is detailed for us in Romans 5. Let me touch on this briefly, verses 17 and following. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see here how Adam was one man who represented all in sin, who were uh, to follow him in sin. And in the same way, Jesus was the Messiah, and he was the one man who represented the new covenant. Therefore, all who are in him have salvation. Now, Jesus Christ, as our covenant head, was the forerunner who went before. This federalism idea, this concept, is expanded to include the term, or is specified to include the term, high priest. In Hebrews, this is the great theme, especially as we see it unfolding in the subsequent chapter 7 and following, the order of Melchizedek and his high priesthood. Jesus fulfills this role, just like the high priest did of old, as the representative who would go before on behalf of the people to advocate, to intercede for them. Now Jesus, in so doing, is our forerunner. But let's uh, take note of imagery that is attached to Christ as our forerunner that also appears in the text, and it's that of an anchor. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Something that belongs to salvation is the assurance tied to the knowledge that Jesus is our covenant head, goes uh, before us as a forerunner to the inner place behind the curtain. But this knowledge is described as an anchor for us, a place that tie or an implement that ties us with certainty uh, when otherwise the environment and our experience would be doubtful or insecure, vulnerable, chaotic. This anchor imagery is expounded for us by a 14th century theologian, a quote from you from Hervaeus. He says the following, In the case of sailors, the sands in which the anchor is fixed and hold are hidden and invisible, yet the sailors are secure, although they cannot see how the arms of the anchor are held. So also we, placed as we are amid the waves of this world, do not see the heavenly realities, yet are so joined to them that through hope, uh, to them through hope that we cannot be moved by any onset of fear. You see the picture here, well expounded by this theologian. The idea is we may not see the anchor firmly fixed in its, at its grounding point, but we nevertheless are tied to it. P.E. Hughes goes on to expand. He says, the, de uh, the depths to grip the ocean, in the case of natural anchors or physical anchors, that is to say, it goes into the depths to grip the ocean bed. However, the anchor that is described in Hebrews 6 is a little different. This uh, anchor, the Christian's anchor, extends to the heights of the heavens. This is powerful. You see, Jesus is our forerunner in the text. It's as if he carried an anchor before us into glory. Thus, our tether, our uh, point of security unto the anchor is attached to Christ who has gone beyond the veil, torn by his blood, into the presence chamber, as Hughes says, of God's favor 
And in this way, we have an anchor for our soul extending into glory, into the heavenly places where it is firmly fixed by Christ. And though in this chaotic time period, this brief interlude in this life where we have hardship and trial that we experience, we have the assurance that something of something belonging to our salvation, namely that we are attached to Christ who as our forerunner ran forward through the veil with the anchor of our soul and attached it to glory. And there we will find our mooring point uh, one day uh, shortly. This is powerful. As we go back, we won't go there this morning, we don't have time, but to Leviticus 15 verses 11 through 22, we see what the author has in mind, and this will expand in further messages as we see also the order of Melchizedek expounded in Hebrews 7 and beyond. When the author speaks of high priests, he refers to Leviticus 15, 11 through 22, where substitutionary atonement was made for the people of God in that time, represented by Aaron, the high priest. What does Christ accomplish in preceding us? Well, He indeed accomplishes full and final, not representative, but substantial substitutionary atonement. His priestly headship is representative redemption, federally representing us. It is symbolically prefigured in Aaron's role, but it is substantially accomplished on the cross and what Christ has done. And as we close this message today, we can see in broader terms, in starker colors, in more dramatic form, the atrocity of apostasy. It is far more apparent when we consider what it spurns, what it ignores, what it despises, what it mocks, what it spits upon. What blasphemy, that is to say, to confess that there is something more sure, that there is any other anchor for the human consciousness, anything else that is secure and steadfast and foundational for us. There is nothing more secure than that which God secures by an oath sworn to Himself, or that, uh, or let it be, or never let it be said of us that we find that there is something more fulfilling than the peace with God obtained by Christ's forerunning priestly work. This morning, communion table, the communion table itself, symbolically proclaims and memorializes what Christ has substantially accomplished. The representative redemption for all who are in Him, for the born again, for all time. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Spirit would seal the truths of Christ's finished work on Calvary on our hearts today. I pray that You would do it through Your preached Word, and You would do it through this covenant meal we have spread before us today, so that we would avoid the pitfalls of sluggishness, and instead move forward in our worship with earnestness, faith, patience, and hope, recognizing that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has gone before and fixed our anchor in glory. Praise be to His holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.